Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone, um, James and I are outside a church. Where are we, James? We're outside St Mary's Church. <laughs> We're somewhere where James can't pronounce it. It's quite funny. Bempster. Bempster. I've pronounced it Beeminster, Beaminster. <laughs> I, I, I think we should do something on the history of pronunciation. That's a really good idea. Because I, I have been car crashing this entirely. But we are at this wonderful literary festival that they have here. Cultural festival. Cultural festival, yeah. So it's not just literary. There's, there's yeah. music, there's all sorts of things. And we're in a, a slightly windy courtyard now. Uh, but it's good in the beautiful St Mary's Church. And we're very much looking forward to it. That is, and this is, in fact, the 24th year that they've been running this. And what I've been so impressed with, I was talking to the chairman, Jonathan, earlier on today. And it's the way in which the whole community gets together to put on these events. And it's really sort of part, an important part of the social cohesion of the place. They've had picnics on the manor, they've had party in the park, and it's open to everyone for free. Yeah. Makes me want to write about the history of community. Yes. About how, I bet there's a long line of history that goes right back. I wonder yes. how far... Um, archaeologists can trace it actually. I've done a lot of work in China on the history of family and communities yes. and that's interesting when I was filming there for Nat Geo recently and um, it's all to do with the way that, well for me I'm interested in the way that Chinese archaeologists are interpreting um, are interpreting settlements according to what their um, sort of predetermined political beliefs are so they want to prove that it's all to do with communism and everything was being shared mm. um, uh, which is really interesting, but the archaeology doesn't quite stack up to what they're saying. But being able to contrast that with what's happening here, and you'd get a really different sense of how modern politics affects the interpretation of history and archaeology. Was it all about the Reformation? <laughs> oh, <is it> really? <laughs> As you can imagine. No, but I mean, the fascinating thing is that the, the church has been hired out for a week or two. They've put up this big stage, there's amazing silk bunting all over the place. I mean, they've basically taken over the church. The church is the hub of this. We've, we've had a lovely lunch uh, cooked for us today um, in the, the green room, which, yep. which is uh, a sort of built out building of the church. But the church historically has always been the fabric at the heart of a, of a local community. Before the, Re before the Reformation, you know, people would have church ales, you know, all sorts of things going on in the late medieval church and so what we're seeing here is the way in which nowadays a modern church is embracing that kind of community role. It made me think about the history of comfort as well or discomfort because all the pews have gone. Yes. And that's very common in churches nowadays isn't it that they get rid of the pews and um, they replace them with comfy seats which is obviously a good thing but it, um, there's, a, there's a history of discomfort there and there's a broader there history of sitting down. There is and the, which link, links actually to what we did this morning so we did a special schools event as part of the festival. What school was that, James? This was Bemster <laughs> School. And the wonderful uh, Catherine Patton, who's the brilliant 
history teacher there had about 120 of their 11 and 12 year old pupils all sitting on the ground on a hard wooden floor in their gymnasium and the kids were terrific. Um, I couldn't have sat there for more than five minutes without fidgeting around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they did very well indeed. Um, so, what else do we know about Bemster? I, I've been for a bit of a walk. Where have you been? What's, where, is, where, where have your perambulations taken? Sam? I um, went out of town towards Dorchester, I think. Oh, um, and I, far from Dorchester, I found a deer park, and so I sat on a hill, did some work for a bit. Oh. Uh, it was a beautiful day, but touch windy. Um, and deer parks are fascinating places. They're really very interesting. So, um, well, deer themselves are also interesting, a very um, significant economic resource. So you can, you can actually do a, write a history of deer. Yes, and all the ways people have. People, um, people use, use deer with um, deer and horns, hunting, hunting yes. leather, food. So it's a, it's a significant economic resource. Um, very common gift in the early modern period, venison. Ah. You often find it in household accounts, gifts of venison. Mm. Um, I, I suppose it's a quite a high... Um, status gifts yes because deer parks is something that was result, um, reserved for royalty and aristocracy aristocratic hunting and yes. um, yeah so the the aristocratic hunting the, the popularity of it went down after the civil war so yes. anything associated with aristocracy goes down so deer parks not so interested but then suddenly when the when britain starts making loads of money again in the late 17th early 18th century and the scars of the civil war are forgotten deer parks become again more important changes with the Industrial Revolution and the changing use um, of the landscape. Um, but one of the fascinating things is that if somewhere gets set aside as being a deer park, then it is not ploughed. And that means deer parks are, you'll like this, they are historical and archaeological archives Ooh, because they haven't had the, oh, all of the all stuff that. removed. So if you are looking for something like a deserted medieval village or a Roman road or a tumulus, or some kind of barrow, deer parks are the way to go because the landscape is exactly the same as it has been, or relatively speaking, um, for centuries, which is why they're so um, fascinating and brilliant for historians and archaeologists. Fantastic. So if you go to a deer park, get in touch, tell me where your nearest deer park is, go there and see if you can keep your eye out for some suspicious looking um, ground features. We should go and try that at Powderham Castle. We Which should. Has a terrific deer park. I was talking to um, Professor Oliver Crichton from um, oh. Exeter University. He's a professor of archaeology, very interested in castles and landscapes, and he's doing a project on war horses. Ooh. And it's also with this, it's really interesting. So stables of war horses and, and where you need to keep them, and you need a um, kind of a corral area, somewhere safe to keep your war horses, and you need a, a um, nearby source of fresh water. And he suspects there's one in Powder and Castle. Mm, in the ground. Yeah. I bet there is. Mm, I bet there is. So, Beminster. 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 That's a short air. Beminster yeah. uh, is, in fact, <laughs> all about fire as well. The, 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 the town burnt down all, three almost burnt down three times in its history, including mm. during the Civil War ah, okay. in 1644 when a musket went off uh, and it lit up a thatched cottage mm. and the whole place nearly burnt down. I, I want to do something on uh, the his this is totally um, random. I want to do his something on the history of roller skating. Hmm. I met a very interesting gentleman yesterday in London uh, who's telling me that roller skating was in fact connected to Winston Churchill. So I want to do some, I think we should set that up as one of our next podcast. Well, it's part of the joy of us being on tour because um, we encourage everyone to come up to us and meet us at the end of the show and to share their stories and to share their quirky interests. 
And um, yeah, he was. Uh, there was, he had another one. I can't remember what it was now. Um, hmm. Postcards. Post so, I met a chap. Together. This yes. is fascinating, right? So this guy, um, name was John. Hello, John. We met him at Whitgift School. Um, where we did a couple of um, a hello Whitgift School, a, a couple of gigs yesterday, and John um, is a curator of um, a, a couple of thousand tens of thousands, tens of thousands of historical postcards, and he has become interested in the positioning of stamps, and this really appealed to me because I deliberately do not put my stamp in the top right-hand corner of anything because I don't like being told what to do. <laughs> um, but obviously, the people in history have been doing that as well, and not only that, but he is um, people are starting to study the angles at which postage stamps are put on letters and what that might signify or reveal. And um, he seems to believe that there's a certain certain code or certain language going on with the yep. way in which stamps are positioned on postcards. And with all my work on letters and spacing and paper and everything, I was totally geeked out about this. Yes. And one of the things I could immediately thought of was anarchists yep. uh, wanting to put the Queen upside down. Yeah. So you know, spinning the stamp around, not having it the right way up. Yeah. Um, but I think it's there's, it's fertile for further research, I it feel. Is. What was the, do we know any more about the roller skating in um, Churchill? I'm going to save that. <laughs> I'm not, not going to blow all our, no. all our powder. You blow powder? I'm not going <laughs> to waste all our powder. <laughs> I keep powder. my powder dry. Hey, there that, we go. For that, that's it. <laughs> And it's Beminster. It's Beminster. Yes. Um, so that was great. Um, we are going to potter down to the museum now and have a look around there. And I think you're going to be interviewing the guy who's done the research for the yes. latest yes. exhibition. Pete Holloway. Pete Holloway. So um, that's where we're off to now. OK, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, everyone. We're just taking some time out of the Beminster Festival. And we're here in Beminster Museum in the Crime and Punishment exhibition. And I'm here with Pete Holloway who has been doing all the research behind this exhibition. So Pete, thanks for showing us around no here. Problem. So what we've got here is a wonderful variety of different exhibitions and displays. We've got some stocks, we've got a woman who's been scratched across the face, the face with brambles. What's your, what's your favourite, what's your favourite part of this, Pete? I think it's the fact that Georgian England, the, the the punishment and the crime were so out of kilter with what we know of today. I mean, I think you've only got to, if you just wander over to yeah, say, let, let's, let's wander, over to shop, wander over to shoplifting. Excellent. Oh, we and, love a bit of shoplifting. I love a bit of shoplifting. And you've got a poor woman here, 18 years old. She um, was one of the very first convicts over to Australia. And all she did was she stole a piece of printed cotton from a shop. Goodness me. And, and she got the death sentence. She was re luckily reprieved, but unfortunately she had to um, go to Australia, 1806, spent, ni spent nine years there. So what we've got here is all sorts of displays. We have a dummy of a burglar uh, climbing out of a window, but we've got all sorts of theft by a domestic servant, uh, theft at a fair, uh, a life, life of crime. So somebody who has a whole career of criminality. We've got a modern highwayman in Bayminster. Um, what caught my eye more than anything, as you come into the exhibition, is this very striking figure. So we've got a mannequin dressed up with, a, with brambles around her and her face scratched. Now tell us about this. This is, this is part of the exhibition about witchcraft. Indeed it is. This is Joan Guppy from uh, South Perret, and she was believed to be a, a witch. Um, but the, a number of the parishioners um, 
in South Perret were um, adamant that she wasn't a witch, and they successfully petitioned the Court of Exchequer that Joan had never hurt anyone. And then here's this magnificent seal signed by all the parishioners saying, come on now, Joan, she's innocent of all her crime. So what we have here in front of us is a replica of an official document dating from the first half, no, what is it, 1604, 1604, and it measures probably about 50 centimetres across by about 30 centimetres long. And what you've got is a series of paper tags and seals on it. And then everyone who thought that she was innocent has signed yes. their name if indeed. they're capable of signing. There yes. are some who've signed with their mark. Yes, indeed. But it, one of the things that caught my attention most here is the element where it's one of the women who was accusing her of being a witch actually attacked her on the road with her husband and scratched her face with brambles. And I'm reading here saying that she was a witch and they came for her blood. And the attack damaged her so grievously, she was wounded, rent and torn, and her face thereby cankered and blemished to the great effusion of her blood. I mean, this, I think what this shows also is something about the violence in the early Jacobean period as well. And the, the way in which people within the village could be their own judge and jury. So it's almost like a sort of kangaroo court. They exact their own justice. Now, what have you, what are you, you're taking us over here to another part. I think this is, this is quite an interesting section on stealing of sheep, cattle, and pigs. And it just, it's just quite amusing that uh, uh, some of the people here, not the brightest uh, people in the box. You look at this guy, George Barrett. He's a butcher. Yeah. And uh, a cow was stolen in the local vicinity. And you think, well, who might be a, a, a possible suspect? The local butcher. Sure enough, there he was, Halstock, George Barrett. He was arrested for the theft of a cow and he was duly executed outside the gates of Dorchester Prison in 1832. Goodness me, so executed for stealing a cow. For stealing a cow. Goodness yes. me, and there's also cruelty to animals here, yes. cruelty to dogs. Yes. People who are so poor that they are, they're forced to steal in order to eat yes. are being punished. Yes. 14 days hard labour for stealing apples. You can imagine scrumping in an orchard, being caught and then being, you know, pretty yes. severely punished. Okay, well, where, where are we moving now? I think now? something else quite interesting over here, we've, we're quite fortunate that after delving through hundreds and hundreds of records, we managed to find two people that were on the first and the second fleet that went over to Australia. Oh, fascinating. So here we've got John Seymour. He was a first fleet convict. Uh, born in Bemidster, and he had seven years, he was sentenced to seven years for feloniously cutting, lopping, and topping one timber tree. Goodness me. So he was born in 1760, sentenced at age 16, 16 so, yes. so 1776, one of 780 convicts in yes. the First Fleet. Yes. Goodness me, what? And then punishment. we've got William Hitchcock here, who was on the Second Fleet, just a couple uh, of decades later. Stealing money and goods in the village. Now, this was a, a notorious um, voyage over to Australia because a lot of people didn't make it. It was one of the worst in history. And the people that were uh, commissioned to take the people over there, they were sort of private contractors, and they were given a sum of money per convict, irrespective of whether they got there dead or alive. So there was a lot of people that never made it on that particular fleet. William Hitchcock probably was one of those that never made yes. it. 
Well, I think what's terrific about this is it's actually quite a small space, but you know, it is absolutely packed. And one of the things I love about it is that it's also geared up for children. Absolutely. I mean, there are so many interactive items. And if any of you live locally, I would very much recommend you come down. If you live in the greater Dorset area, come and have a look at it. There is, for example, a, there's a set of stocks here. So you can be put in the stocks, you can be put in the irons, and there are all sorts of things for children to do. There's a D-Day exhibition next door. So Pete, thank you very much for showing us around Absolutely and for your no time. Problem. And good luck with the with the next exhibition. I'd, I'd probably just say that, just in conclusion, that the people who dress the museum have done a fantastic job with the artwork and dressing the museum, creating the stocks. They've done a re really, really good job. They certainly have. Well, thank you. Yeah. Lovely to meet you. No problem at all. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.